Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm here because it's my pleasure to take us into the next uh, se- section of Nehemiah. And I'm just going to warn you now that I've not asked Susio to show this week's passage on the screen for you. So if you're someone who likes to read along, with the passage, you might want to reach for a Bible now and start flicking to Nehemiah. So last week, Rachel talked to us about the opposition that Nehemiah faced in chapter four, helping us to understand why we sometimes face opposition and how that fits into God's purposes. I highly recommend you go back and listen to it if you missed it, because it was so helpful. This week, we are jumping ahead to chapter six, where we find more opposition to Nehemiah and his plans a kind of a part two on how we deal with opposition. And this talk is called Keeping the Main Thing, the Main Thing. As we read through the passage, you may recognise the names of some of Nehemiah's enemies, in particular Sambalat and Tobiah. They've come back again. And Nehemiah, um, Rachel said it reads like a soap opera at times, but this week I think we're going a step further into full pantomime mode. And so... In that spirit, when you hear the names of Sambalat and Tobiah in this reading, I'd love you all to give your best pantomime at the screen so we can all see it really visually how you're doing that. And then each time Nehemiah overcomes one of their schemes, you can give me a big like, woo, woo, woo. Okay. This would be so off-putting if we were all gathered together and doing this in person, but I can't hear you, so it works perfectly well here. Um, so just for your information, I'm going to read all of chapter six and then we're going into chapter seven for the first three verses um, and hence why we've not got it on the slides. So here we go. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, there we go, Geshem and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now, strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night they are coming to kill you but i said should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life i will not go i realized that god had not sent him 
but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they had done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the war was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah son of Ara and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I had said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the Levites were appointed. And I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, help them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Thanks for committing to that. That made me feel much better because we're not good otherwise. Last week, we heard Sambalat and Tobiah jeering and their physical threats. You can stop now. <laughs> But the opposition we see in this passage is a bit more subtle. I've called it the fear of man. Really interesting when Adam asked uh, for words of knowledge about what God was speaking about. The topic of fear came up again and again. And one person literally put the phrase the fear of man. And I thought, yeah, this is a message for today. So the title of this week's preach is keeping the main thing the main thing. And so based on Nehemiah's actions here, I want to present a three-step process for doing that when faced with the fear of man. And the first step is to recognize it. The first question is, what is the fear of man and how do we recognize it? Now, often in a narrative form like this, we see in Nehemiah, the author doesn't necessarily tell us people's intentions. You're supposed to work it out from their actions. But Nehemiah really helpfully explicitly tells us in verse two, they were trying, scheming to harm me. In verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us. In verse 13, he had been hired to intimidate me. In verse 15, she and the rest of the prophets had been trying to intimidate me. Verse 19, Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. Thanks, Nehemiah. Really helpful. But how did Nehemiah recognise it? Our world is so far removed from the world of Nehemiah that some of the things that may have been obvious to a contemporary audience pass us by. So I'm just going to tell you a modern parallel story that will hopefully shed some light on a few aspects of the story. Imagine you see a Facebook post on some controversial issue. Take your pick at the moment. There are plenty out there. You don't normally get drawn into this kind of thing, but the level of ignorance is just too high to ignore this time. So you take some time really carefully um, write a, construct a really well-formed post filled with love, and grace, gentle correction. You hit post feeling pretty good about it. And then 10 seconds later into your inbox drops a message, a private message saying, come, let us meet together. 
in one of the pubs in the district of Chesterfield. Chesterfield? You don't know anyone in Chesterfield? It's outside Yorkshire. Is it even safe outside Yorkshire? It's actually about the same distance from Harrogate to Chesterfield as it was from the plains of Ono to Jerusalem. So that gives you an idea of the scale. If you really want to commit to this analogy, you've got to walk to Chesterfield as well. You can't drive there. It's about a three-day journey. You politely decline the invitation. You've got a job. You can't just walk to Chesterfield. But he asks again and again and again. Nehemiah didn't need great prophetic insight or a message from heaven to work out that these guys were trying to intimidate him. Back to our modern day parallel. On the fifth time of asking, he writes on your wall so anyone can see it. And this post is just full of lies about you, about outrageous things you apparently said and done. It is significant that Nehemiah receives an open letter, deliberately not sealed. Any number of people could have read this letter while it was in transit. On a first read through, it doesn't sound all that bad what was happening to Nehemiah necessarily. Why is he getting so worked up? But can you see the hidden threats? Nehemiah definitely did. But what about us? Where do we see the fear of man at work in our lives? Let me give you three examples of how we might encounter the fear of man as Christians today. You can probably think of plenty more of your own life too. So the fear of man tells us we need to keep up the pretense because we call ourselves Christians. In many times, well, not many times, but sometimes in my journey of faith, when church becomes just a routine, when worship and community give way to singing and meal workers, and church is just what I do on Sundays. I'm sure those times happen to us all. And usually what brings us back is hearing about the faith and enthusiasm of other people at church. But sometimes the fear of man prevents us from talking about it and working through it because we feel the pressure to be good Christians. When someone asks, how often do you read your Bible? And you feel the need to round your answer up quite a lot because this week you haven't read it at all. And you're on worship team and you're supposed to be setting an example. Is it just me? The fear of man can isolate us and prevent us from being who God made us to be. The fear of man tells us we should try to avoid conflict at all costs. And as a watered-down version of Christianity, whose message is that if you're nice enough to people, you'll get into heaven. I'm sure that's what some people outside the church think we're about. I'm sure there are times when we flip into believing that ourselves. And you can see the appeal. You can just do what everyone else is doing. And then when it gets too far, you just silently opt out and no conflict, no fuss, no awkward conversations, no one talking about the weird Christian behind your back. But that's a watered-down Christianity because it presents a watered-down Jesus. Uh, everywhere Jesus went, he faced opposition and conflict. And if we're his followers, we should expect the same thing. Not to say we go looking for arguments and being confrontational with people, but truth spoken with love will generate opposition. And if we fear the opposition, we won't speak truth. And if we don't speak truth, we won't be effective in God's kingdom. And the fear of man tells us we should give up on God-given dreams and plans because of what our friends and family might think. Imagine with me for a second, the closest people are there in the room with you, whether that's friends or family, not something we can take for granted these days. And you're telling them that God has told you to move across the other side of the world to plant a church. There are people in our church who don't need to imagine that, they've done it. But just think what their reactions would be. 
even if they love Jesus too, there's going to be pain and shock, and you might feel guilty about that. If they don't love Jesus, there's likely to be confusion, disbelief, possibly anger, maybe ridicule. And when God gives you big dreams, it will impact on those around you. That's a fairly extreme example, but one that we know well in this family, I hope. Whatever your dreams that God has given you, if you keep them to yourself for fear of what people will say and how people will react, your dreams will stay just that way as dreams. The fear of man will prevent you from doing what God has called you to do. These are things that all distract us or even turn us away from the main thing. And Nehemiah recognises when the fear of man is a threat. And he deals with it again and again in the story. So let's look at how. After we've recognised it, step two is to respond to it. The response we see from Nehemiah is always as short as possible. Give as little attention as you can to the thing that is trying to intimidate you. To those first messages, Nehemiah responds, I'm working. He doesn't apologise for the job that God has given him to do. The open letter demands a bit more of a direct response. So Nehemiah just says, yeah, you're making it up. Shemaiah is supposed to be on his side. So we get a bit more of a fleshed out response, but it's still really direct. Nehemiah says, should a man like me run away? By which he means he's the leader of his people, the appointed governor by the king. If he's afraid, what chance do any of his people have? says should someone like me go into the temple to save his life even in the face of the threat to his very life Nehemiah knows his place when it comes to God God's sanctuary is holy and he knows his place why does Nehemiah not put more energy into refuting the claims against him why did he not write a long sassy post back on Sambalat's Facebook page explaining all the reasons that his guy is all powerful so he doesn't need to answer to anyone well, it's precisely because he's all-powerful and doesn't need to answer to anyone. So why invest all that energy? There was another response that could easily pass you by, but Nehemiah prays in this passage. In verse 9, he just says, God, strengthen my hands. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah trusts God for his strength. Crucially, Nehemiah also trusts God for justice. He prays, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God. He doesn't seek justice for himself. And this is at the heart of why he doesn't need to give any attention. It's how we can overcome the fear of man. There's no need to spend time and energy arguing it out to convince his enemies that Yahweh is the one true God. And so even if they disagree, he's going to carry on doing what he thinks is right or creating his own counter-propaganda to um, counter the lies that Tobiah and Sambalat have spoken about him. Because that's not what God asked Nehemiah to do. Nehemiah has a job, and so he just trusts. Justice belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah trusts that if he continues doing what Yahweh has called him to do, he will vindicate, he will justify, he will fight Nehemiah's battles for him. Now I know how hard it is when someone has wronged me to let it drop. Around the time when I was changing jobs from teaching into software development, um, just a few years ago, we had a bank error in our favour and unexpectedly gained a few thousand pounds. It was pretty great. We took that as divine provision from the Lord, a sign that we were doing the right thing, walking in his will. And we decided to invest a significant proportion of that money into some training for me, which would help me make the career change. And this course was just diabolically bad. The quality was so poor. 
But when the company we paid this money to wouldn't give any money back to me, even when I had found mistakes in this area, mistakes in this material, and I was supposed to be the complete beginner, I felt so angry. I was so wronged. I left a scathing review for the course, hoping others wouldn't make the same mistake. But even that, I held on to this pain for quite a while. I started following their accounts on social media. So when they were putting up their advertising, I would be like, no, don't buy it. But what a privileged position to be in that I gained this money from nowhere. I'm sure other people have had to learn this money, lesson about money in a much worse circumstances. I had, This money I hadn't earned at all. And so losing it, what right did I have to be about angry about that? God was teaching me about letting go of that pain, about um, trusting God to fight my battles for me. Because the more energy and time I put into trying to correct this wrong, the less time I was doing, spending on the things that God had called me to. And so the third thing, uh, after we've recognized and responded, we have to refocus. And this is keeping the main thing as the main thing. What is the main thing, though? Well, that all flows out from who we are. You are invited into God's family, and so you share a common purpose with him. His purposes are your purposes. If God has called you to something specific, then you know what that is. That is your calling. That is your main thing. But if you don't know what that is, then, well, let me tell you, it's, to love people and to love God. That is the main thing. I mean, you might be like Nehemiah. You might have a clear vision of what God wants to use you for. Or you might be like the guy that built the Dungate. He was just working on the bit of the wall near his house, serving his community, serving his family. And what happens when we keep the main thing as the main thing? The wall went up in 52 days. In case you're not up on your ancient wall building speeds, that is fast. Nehemiah is so poetic in how he writes this book. In verse 16, he says, When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. With all their efforts to generate fear in Nehemiah and his people, um, simply by keeping the main thing as the main thing, God turned that back on its head. Do you remember the taunts that Sambalat and Tobiah made last week? They said, will they finish in a day? And Nehemiah responded, turn their insults back on their heads. And the war went up incredibly quickly. And all that fear that his enemies had tried to put on him was turned back on their heads, just as Nehemiah had prayed. Now, so far... We've been seeing ourselves in the role of Nehemiah, learning from his faithful obedience, the right way to respond to opposition when the world threatens to intimidate you. But as much as we look at Nehemiah's example, we're never going to live up to that all of the time. Nehemiah doesn't tell us any of his failures in this book, but I guarantee that Nehemiah didn't live up to it all of the time either. There is only one man who ever has. Jesus is our ultimate example of the faithful obedience in the face of opposition. There are plenty of examples of Jesus dealing with the fear of man in the pattern that we have seen throughout the Gospels. When Peter rebukes Jesus for teaching him, teaching people about his death, Jesus responds, 
you do not have a mind that consents of God, but merely human consents. See, he recognizes it, he responds to it, and then he refocuses on what he was brought to do. When his mother and brothers arrive while Jesus is teaching, he doesn't leave his work to meet their expectations, but he keeps the main thing as the main thing. When he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When the crowds come to arrest Jesus, he doesn't fight, but he submits to the will of God. He's the perfect example of submission to God in the face of doubt and scorn and betrayal by the people that he came to save. So having this perfect example reveals to us the standard to which we are called and at the same time just how far away from it we are. But the good news is that by his spirit, we have the means to bridge that gap as we are transformed day by day to be more in his likeness. The more time we spend just gazing at Jesus and worshipping at his feet. I was at Word Wednesday this week by the magic of Zoom. It's our midweek group where we're reading Romans 8. And I was struck by verse 17 because it speaks exactly into this story. It says, now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And indeed, if we share in his sufferings, then we also share in his glory. In the context of Romans, Paul's been talking about the work of the spirit within us joining us to Christ's death and also to his resurrection, joining us to his suffering and also to his righteousness. Just as Nehemiah's righteousness saved the people of the city, Jesus' righteousness is counted as our righteousness. And all of us who count ourselves as part of the kingdom of God who are building the wall. So we should expect opposition, as Rachel said last week. We should also expect to suffer because we are united with Christ which means that we share in his suffering, but we also share in his glory. It's not the side of Christianity that we tend to write songs about, but it is the only thing worth suffering for. And by his spirit, we are more than conquerors. So that when the fear of man threatens you, recognize it, respond to it, and refocus. Keep the main thing as the main thing. To condense this message into a single sentence, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The race is not to a destination, but just to run with Christ wherever he is leading you. Cling to him because by his spirit, we have overcome and we will overcome. Ben's going to lead us in one final song. And I encourage you to reflect on your total dependence on Christ. He's called you to a high purpose, to not get distracted by the concerns of this world. And by his spirit, he has given you the strength to do it. 